You know, most people know that Jesus was a master storyteller. In fact, one of the best-known elements of his ministry was his use of parables. Even people that are unfamiliar with the Bible and don't necessarily know the details of the life of Jesus will know what you're talking about if you happen to mention that someone's a prodigal. They'll understand we're talking about someone who's wayward. They'll understand immediately when you say someone is a good Samaritan, that you're talking about someone who's kind and compassionate. And these stories of Jesus have become a real part of our, of our um, language in terms of the stories that were told and the lessons that were learned. There are at least 35 different parables that were told by Jesus during, uh, throughout the Gospels. And when you look at those parables, they take up almost one-third of the Gospels. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking some time to go through a selection of those parables of Jesus. And as we do that, uh, we're going to see that Jesus had a lot to say about some, some very practical parts of life. He's going to talk about our heart for Him and His truth and how we receive it. He's going to talk about God's heart for us and the spiritual need that we have. He's got some things to say about prayer. He's going to talk about the compassion, love, and forgiveness that we are to extend to other people. He's going to talk about using our God-given talents and the opportunities the Lord gives us to serve Him. And there's a lot more that we'll be looking at as we go through the various parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're starting with what may have been his first parable. And it's one of his better known ones. And it's the parable of the sower and the seed. Before we get into the parable itself, let's answer some questions about parables in general as we're getting ready to do the series together. And we'll start basic, and that is, what is a parable? Because a parable is a lot more than a story that serves as an illustration. You see, the word parable means to place alongside something. And the idea is that a parable is a story that you place that's about something that you know and you're familiar with, and you put it next to something that is new and unfamiliar in order to help you understand it. It could be a new truth that you're learning. It could be something that God is sharing that you don't understand. You need more clarification. It could be a question that is being asked about how to live this life. But there is something on the table that we need a deeper understanding. And so there are these times when Jesus took a story about something that you're familiar with, put it alongside of that spiritual truth so that you can gain a deeper understanding of it. And so that's a parable. It's something from daily life that is used to describe and explain a spiritual truth. John MacArthur says that a parable is a simple word picture with profound spiritual lessons. Well, why did Jesus use parables? And it may not be exactly what you're thinking. Jesus Christ did not use parables to bring understanding, not primarily. Jesus used parables to reveal people's hearts. To reveal their attitude toward him and what he was saying. 
to reveal the attitude of a, and heart that a person had for his claims of being the Son of God and being Messiah's Savior, as well as the things that he was teaching about how to live this life as his followers. In parables, as he told them, became something that would reveal the heart of his hearers. He says this himself here in Matthew 13, and starting in, ver- in, in verse 13. And there's two basic types of people that he is referencing here. The first are the people whose hearts are closed towards him. They're closed towards him. And says, starting in verse 13, these are the words of Jesus, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. The point that Isaiah was making in that prophecy is that when someone comes before the Lord in his truth with a heart that is hard, or in this case calloused, They hear words, but they don't understand what they're hearing. They see things that God is doing, but they don't understand what they're seeing. And it's because of the condition of their heart. And so when someone has an attitude toward Jesus that is hard, that is um, rejecting or indifferent, then parables will reveal that. Their response to parables will reveal that. Parables will lead to confusion. And so they will just walk away. Or the parable will cause them to become even more determined in their rejection. And so that's the first group of people. The second group of people are those whose hearts are open to Jesus. They're open to Jesus. He's talking to the twelve along with a handful of other disciples in verse 16 when he says these words. He says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. You see, if you have a heart that is open to the Lord and you see and you receive the word, you receive his truth, you receive the truth of Jesus in the gospel. You receive the fact that He is God. You receive the fact that He's Savior. You see, receive the fact that He's called us to a life that is counterintuitive to what we think we should be living, living many times. Parables will lead you to seek and understand truth even more deeply. They will bring questions to your mind, but you want the answers, and so you seek the answers. And so in the end, you grow in your relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus Christ told parables to reveal which heart do you have closed or open. Parables are both a mirror and a window in that sense. A parable is going to be a mirror that you look into to see where your heart is. What is your response to what's being to Jesus and what he's teaching? And if our hearts are open to the Lord, then that same parable becomes a window through which we can see God more clearly, through which we can gain understanding of this life that God is calling us to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so it's a mirror that reveals who we are and where we are and our attitude towards the Lord, and then they become a window that reveal to us God and His truth. And so that's what parables are for. Now there's 
Something that's interesting, and that's the fact that the majority, in fact, almost all of Jesus' parables were told in the last 10 months of his ministry. I've heard some pastors say that Jesus always used parables and stories. No, he did not. He did not start using parables until the last section of his ministry, about 10 months. That's when the opposition of the Jewish leaders and the skepticism of many of the people who have been coming out to hear him and to see him, they're both growing. The the rejection's growing and the skepticism is growing. And so it's time for the hearts of people to be revealed. And Jesus is calling them to a moment where they're going to have to be able to say, my heart is open or it's closed to who Jesus is what he's claiming, and what he's teaching. And so the parables are either going to cause somebody to walk away from Jesus, they're going to cause somebody to rise up and attack Jesus, or they're going to draw people to Jesus. Now there's some keys to understanding parables that are very important. And we're going to review these as we go through the parables each week. First of all, be sure to study the parable in its context because parables are always going to be dealing with either a spiritual truth or a question that's being asked. And you get it sometimes in the parable. Other times you get it from the context in which the parable is being told. For instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The context of that is right before Jesus tells the parable, a scribe comes up and says, Jesus trying to trick him, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, is connected to it, is a part of it, love your neighbor like yourself. And it says the scribe, trying to justify himself, asked the question. What did he ask? Who's my neighbor? That's the context. The question that Jesus is addressing in the parable of the Good Samaritan is, who is my neighbor? And so understanding the context of the parable is important. Once you have the context, then you look for the primary truth. Every parable has one primary key truth it's trying to teach. And so it's important to understand, what is that one truth? Why is Jesus saying it? How do I know that? Well, it's always going to come out of the context. So again, the example of the Good Samaritan. The primary point of the Good Samaritan is that everybody's my neighbor, including those I do not like and including those that society says I should be a, see as either an enemy or someone in opposition to me. Everybody's my neighbor. And therefore, I should love everyone as I would love myself. A secondary point Jesus himself gives is that it also tells us how to love our neighbor. But the primary point is to answer the question, who's my neighbor? So you get the context, you get the primary point, and don't get lost in the details. People have written books about parables because they can get get lost in the details. Not every detail of a parable has a spiritual truth attached to it. Sometimes it's just a detail to fill out the story. And there's no spiritual element to it in the sense of this represents this and this represents that and this represents something. No, no, the detail's a detail. (laughs) The primary truth is a primary truth. 
and, a bow, and, there's, and you will understand as you understand the context. So three very important things. Context, primary point, don't get lost in the details. Stay focused on the primary thing. So what's the context of this parable that we're going to be looking at here this morning with the rest of our time? What's the, the context of the parable of the sower and the seed? Well, in the last half of chapter 12, the Pharisees have just accused Jesus of being in league with Satan and empowered by him. And they have said, therefore, you are a deceiver. Right after that, in fact, Jesus, they do that because they can't deny the miracles of Jesus, so they seek to discredit Jesus with this claim. He's not from God, he's from Satan. And Jesus then talks about the unpardonable sin, which is rejecting him, and along with that, rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus, because you can only have salvation through Christ. And so if you reject Jesus, there is no place to go for you to find salvation. So therefore, rejecting Jesus is the unpardonable sin. There is no alternative way of redemption. Right after the Pharisees do this, Jesus goes into a home where he's having dinner with a bunch of his disciples and his family shows up. And they've come to take him home to Nazareth because they think he's gone insane. And so his family's saying he's delusional. Now, Jesus has been preaching, teaching, and healing in towns and villages throughout Israel for two years at this point. Six months in Judea, followed by 18 months in his home area of Galilee. So when you hear what happens at the end of chapter 12, you have to ask the question, what's been the effect of all that ministry? What's been the effect of all that teaching, all that preaching? If the Jewish leaders are claiming that Jesus is a deceiver and his own family's claiming he's delusional, what's going on? Because as far as the people are concerned, the leaders know, these Jewish leaders know the word better than anybody, and they have been given the responsibility to determine whether somebody is a teacher from God or if they are a false teacher who's blaspheming. And they're saying he's a blasphemer. He is a deceiver. They look at this family of Jesus, whom Jesus grew up with, and they say no one knows Jesus better than his family, and they're saying he's delusional. What's going on? Matthew 13, 1 indicates that that same day Jesus went out of the house. What day? The day that the Pharisees declared that he is a deceiver and his family said he's delusional. And so what Jesus is doing as he launches into the parable of the sower is he's answering that question. What's going on? What's been the effect of two years of preaching and teaching? especially in light of what the leaders and what his own family are saying about him. And as we're going to see, a better title for this is going to be the parable of the four soils. But we'll get into that in a moment. That's the context, and it's important to understand that. Then, here's the primary point. 
Here's the primary lesson that Jesus has. The effect of God's word on a person is determined by the condition of their heart as they receive it. The effect of God's word on a person is determined by the condition of their heart as they receive it. It's not based on the skill of the speaker. It's not what you can do in, 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 in bringing out some sort of an element of, of whatever that might get people's attention. That might draw people in. But when it comes to the Word of God itself, the effect God's Word will have in that person's life is the result, as determined rather by the condition of the heart as they are receiving it. And Jesus will reveal four different hearts or attitudes. There are three main characters of the story. There's a sower, and in this particular parable, he's not identified. So this is anyone who's teaching the Word of God and anybody who's presenting the gospel. The second is the seed. Now, Luke, in Luke chapter 8, also gives us this parable as Jesus is teaching it, and he identifies the seed in a more general way. He says it represents the Word of God. Here in Matthew, in verse 19, it's more specific. It says that this represents the message of the kingdom, and both are true. It's the Word of God, but it's centering on this message about the kingdom. In other words, this is what what Jesus had to say about his life, about the claims of who he is, and about what he teaches about life. It's what we call the gospel. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world, and He has called us to walk with Him in a certain way in discipleship. And that's the gospel. Now, neither of these, though, are the main thing. Neither one is the main character. The main thing in this, and element and character of this, is the soils. The soils are the stars. And these soils represent a person's heart and attitude toward Jesus and the Word of God. And we're going to see that only one of them is going to experience a true life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ and His truth. And so now Jesus gets into the parable. In verse 3, he says, A farmer went out to sow a seed, something that they would have seen throughout Israel all the time. Farmers out sowing their seed. Now, in the time of Jesus, farmers' fields were very narrow and long, and it makes sense because most of them didn't even have the benefit of a mule or a donkey. Only the more wealthy had that. So you did everything by hand, and you scattered the, the seed by a method that was called broadcasting. So you're doing that by hand. So these fields are narrow. These fields were divided by footpaths. They didn't have fences or hedgerows or walls. They were just footpaths that had been trodden down over generations by the farmers. And there were paths that went all along the outside of your plot, your area, and then there was one that went right through the middle. And so as you sowed the seed, you'd go down that middle path and you would throw it this way, 
and then you would throw it the other way, and there was a skill to it that you could distribute that seed nice and evenly across your plot of farmland, your, your field. And so that's what's happening here. The field contains four types of soil, Jesus says, picking it up in verse 4. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Since the farm is trying to seed the entire field, every square inch of it, a small amount of seed found its way onto the pathways. No way the seed is going to germinate on that hardened soil, and so quickly birds come and they eat it up and it's gone. Then he gets to the second soil. Verse 5, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. This is not referring to rocky soil as in rocks in the soil. This is a thin layer, maybe three inches of topsoil on top of a stone ledge. And so the seed is able to actually germinate. In fact, it's going to come up faster than the seed that falls into the deeper soil. But because it can't get down deep enough to get enough moisture, the hot sun, that hot Mideastern sun, soon withers and then it dies. Then he gets to the third soil. He said, other seed, in verse 7, other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Some of the seed falls amongst a thorny weed called the onkathus. The onkathus. The onkathus was this weed that grew thorns that came out to be about an inch long. This is what the Roman soldiers used to put together the crown that was placed on Jesus at his crucifixion. Like any weed, it would soon overwhelm the good plants that are trying to grow, and it prevents them from being able to bear fruit. And then he gets to the fourth soil. In verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is a soil that had been fully cultivated. It had been weeded, and it was deep. Seed falls there. It takes root. It grows up and it produces an abundant crop. The profit that's being referred to here is the amount of money that was made above the cost of sowing, growing, and harvesting the crop. And so some of the, fee, some of the, the seed, in other words, one part of his field produced 30 times that cost, others 60 times the cost, others 100 times the cost. A farmer was doing well if he got a tenfold yield. And so obviously, this guy's getting fantastic yields. And I really believe that Jesus is trying to make the point that this is more than just a skilled farmer and good soil. He's introducing the idea there's evidence that God's hand is here. Something above the norm is happening. And then Jesus challenges the people to listen, who are listening, to hear what he has said with understanding. He says in verse 9, whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, what he's actually doing there is extending to them an invitation to come and get further information, to get a further explanation. And that's exactly what twelve, the 12 and a few other disciples do. And Luke, it says that the 12 apostles, along with a, a few, a small number of the other disciples, They come up to Jesus in verse 10 and they say, 
Why do you speak to the people in parables? What they're saying is, Jesus, we have no idea what you were just talking about. Would you please tell us more? It reveals their hearts. They have a heart to hear because they're seeking deeper understanding. They're seeking deeper understanding. Now remember in verse 1, there's a large crowd. Only a small handful come up to Jesus for this next explanation. And so Jesus does explain the parable starting in verse 18. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. See, these are people that are indifferent or resistant to the gospel. They're either indifferent or they're resistant to the gospel. The indifference can be casual. They can simply say, you know what, I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. It's not for me anyway, and just quietly walk away. The person that's rejecting might be very intense and combative. Both have the same heart, though. They both have the same heart. They have a heart that is closed and unable to receive God's truth. Notice that these are people that Satan has deceived and blinded. The evil one is the one who's come and taken the seed away. This is a spiritual battle we're talking about here, not just human intellect. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, where he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then he goes to the next, verse 20. He says, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. There are some people who have an emotional but superficial response to the gospel. It's an emotional, but it's a superficial response to the gospel. They've had an emotional experience, but not saving faith. There's no conversion here. There's no salvation here. Their faith lasts for a season, and then it's gone, and they walk away. It's interesting that The Bible teaches that when we, believers, go through a trial or a challenge or face persecution, it promotes growth. It's like Paul says in chapter 5 of Romans, not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Even in the midst of the most challenging times of life, if we are really a truly a believer, even when we may be asking where is God, there is still that sense of God's love that we still can grab onto. But here Jesus says, when someone's faith is, put that in parentheses, is purely emotional, they don't have any spiritual roots, these same challenges and persecution will wither them and they will die. And he goes to the third soil in verse 22. He says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfaithful or unfruitful. 
Some people seem to have a response to the gospel, but the distractions of busyness from the world reveal the lack of true repentance. And so there is no fruit. In the Bible, and it's very important to note, Jesus could have used any number of things here to describe the weeds. He uses thorns, and he does it for a reason, because in Scripture, thorns represent sin. Thorns represent sin. It represents that result of the curse on the earth, That's the, and so therefore, it is a picture of sin. And so this is a person who has not really repented from their sin. They've had some sort of mental assent, perhaps, to the gospel. If the, if the soil and the shallow soil had an emotional response, this is that mental response. I believe it in the sense of my head, but there is not a heartfelt response to the gospel. And so there's no spiritual fruit because there's no real salvation. The worries of this life, they're distracted and busy. When he talks about the deceitfulness of wealth, the sin here is not the wealth itself because that's not condemned in Scripture. It's when we're devoted to attaining it. It's when we are trusting in our wealth for our security. It's when we are identifying ourselves and have purpose in life because of our wealth and what we can have instead of being devoted to God instead of trusting God, and instead of having our identity in Christ. And then there's the fourth soil in verse 23. He says, But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Some people that we do have an open, heartfelt response to the gospel. And the evidence of that is the spiritual fruit of our lives. A heartfelt response to the gospel will be evidenced by spiritual fruit in our lives. He says that these are folks who understand the gospel, and that word understand could be translated who receive it. Who receive it. This is that heartfelt response to the gospel in which we acknowledge our sin and repent from it, make a decision we want to turn from self and turn towards God, that we recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that his death on the cross paid the penalty for sin through which we get forgiveness, that his resurrection defeated death, through which we get eternal life, and that putting aside any trust in ourselves, we fully entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ as Savior, and we are adopted and brought into the family of God as a son or a daughter. Praise the Lord. And they have understood, they've received the gospel. Out of this new relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to produce spiritual fruit. Now, I think it's important that when Jesus says 30, 60, or 100-fold harvest, based on what we've seen, he's not saying, well, you better make sure you've got a huge amount of spiritual fruit here. No, his point is, you can't do this. You can't possibly produce this fruit. This comes from God. 
This is a work that you are allowing God to do in your life because it's supernatural, not something that you've done on your own. This is spiritual transformation, not personal rehabilitation. And so Jesus lays it out so there's no doubt. This is God's work. He's the one giving you the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5. He is the one who is enabling you to have a heart of worship of Hebrews 13. And he is the one that produces unity within the body of Christ with each other, like Acts chapter 2. This kind of fruit takes a long time to grow. matures over an even longer period of time. And different people have a different level of growth. But Jesus is making this point for us. The sower and the seed in the story has remained the same. Only the soils are different. And the point is the condition of those soils. Indifferent and resistant. Emotional and superficial. Distracted and unrepentant. Or open and heartfelt. The open and heartfelt response to the gospel brings salvation, followed by growth, followed by fruit. In the ministry of Jesus, he experienced all four types of hearts as he preached and taught. His own family was indifferent until after his resurrection. The Pharisees and other Jewish leaders were resistant. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus all excited, what, can you, what must I do to be saved? And when Jesus made the bar too high, he leaves emotional and superficial. Judas was distracted and unrepentant and sold out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But then you have open and heartfelt. The 11 faithful apostles and many other men and women like Mary Magdalene, 120 of which will be in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. So Jesus knew what it was to have all four types of hearts receiving what he was saying. And the response came out of the condition of the heart. Throughout his ministry, Jesus held out this open invitation to come this open invitation to seek, this open invitation to find salvation in him, right up until the final moments of his life on the cross where he welcomes the repentant thief to saving faith. Let those who have ears, let them hear. Let those who are open come closer and find life. We share the gospel to that same assortment of people. At one point in time, we were those other soils, weren't we? I was. I traveled through all three of those on my way to Jesus. And some of you have a similar experience. It's important to remember two things in that regard. Number one, our responsibility is to share the gospel to the people around us not worry about the kind of spiritual soil the seed is landing on. 
Jesus Christ spread the truth regardless of where the heart was. Our job is to be the sower. Let's stop complaining about the soil. And let's share the gospel and trust God to change their heart to open. Because one person, because a person's response to the gospel might be resistant, superficial, or unrepentant today. But it does not mean that their heart will become, won't become open in the future. And so we pray, because this is a spiritual battle. It is Satan who's brought the deception and the blindness. And then we let God use us to cultivate those hearts by showing the love and care of Jesus to them as we have opportunity. And finally, because you and I still deal with our sin nature, even as believers, we need to continuously be cultivating our hearts and attitudes toward Jesus and his word so that our lives will continue to grow spiritual fruit. If we're not careful, you and I can become indifferent and even resistant to the word of God. Yeah, whatever, I've heard that before. Or, no, 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 don't touch that part of my life. I'm not ready for that to change yet. (laughs) We can become superficial in our response, all emotion and talk and no action. We can become distracted and focused on worldly concerns and so busy in our schedules that God gets squeezed out. And so we prayerfully need to be seeking to remain open. Heartfelt acceptance and openness towards the Lord. An open heart towards his word an open heart towards the work he desires to do in our lives so he can produce his fruit and through our lives we will honor and glorify him and the world will see Jesus through us his church amen let's pray Father, we do thank you for the the fact that each one of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior were brought to faith through your grace, had our hearts cultivated and opened because of your grace. We thank you for the people that were involved, that you used in our lives, God, that were part of that cultivating and preparing and getting us to that point to where we heard the gospel that that one time where we went, yes, with an open, heartfelt response and experienced saving faith in Jesus Christ. God, may we have a passionate desire for this world around us to experience that same moment in relationship with your son. May our hearts remain open and growing so that our lives can be used to cultivate and to to spread the word of the gospel and to watch as we see others join us in your family. And we pray all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. In closing this morning, we're going to sing my Jesus.